0: Welcome to Low by Lee. I'm your host, Tyler Byrne. On today's episode, if you had not read the description, if you had not read the title, when you clicked on this, I'm talking to Sebastian Castillo. Published. Salmon, Salmon by Shabby House, Press. Previously, he has published Not I with uh, Word West Press and 49 Venezuelan novels by Bottle Cap Press. He is from Venezuela. At the age of eight, he moved to New York. This was a great conversation. As always, I have all my conversations are just excellent. I talk about more on this on the outro. If you want to stick around, if you don't, you can always click out. Um, so on this episode, I mentioned Bradley's podcast, Other People. That's a great interview. If you want more backstory on Sebastian, I recommend that show. Also, recommend listening to Lucy's interview that she did on YouTube a few years back, where she talked to some people from the Shabby Doll House uh, reading group. I believe if also if you want to meet Sebastian, Lucy K Shaw is actually holding an exclusive special meet and greet online extravaganza spectacle on june 11th and the book club readings are held of course online you can go to bookclubs.com look up profound experience and poetry you can email me t-d-o-t-b-u-r-n at gmail.com for the invite link or you can email lucy at lk showbiz at gmail.com I believe you can ask her she's a very she's a very humble she's very humble she's very nice don't be afraid of don't be intimidated by Lucy be intimidated by Rochelle and just kidding Rochelle's very nice don't bother Rochelle Rochelle has nothing to do with this she runs Peach Magazine She's jumping out of airplanes with her husband, Aiden. Yet to be, soon to be husband. Someday. They're fiancés. They've been fiancés for the past 10 years. And they're jumping out of airplanes. I already said that. So, you know, the reading group, you can meet Carmen, past guest. You can meet Caroline Rayner, author of Moan Wilds. That's also out now. It's a, that book, wow. Can't even talk about that book. Um, and this episode, I focus more on this latest book, and I go into a lot of the details of it. So if you haven't read it, um, I suggest go purchase it, Um, especially for the, you know, if you were thinking about, should I get this book or not? I think now you should definitely go get it. If you're on the fence about whether, you know, whether you're going to read it, I think this show should definitely, you know, give you some more confidence to go to go read it. This, you know, you'd have a strong foundation to understand the things that are going on in this episode because I talk a lot about uh, the book. And if you haven't bought the book, uh, you can still listen to this episode. It won't make much sense. Also, you may get like, you may be like, I'm not going to buy this book. But then you start listening to this episode because you love listening to me. And you start getting that that feeling in the back of your neck, the back of your head. You start heating up. You start to feel uncomfortable. Like, I need to go buy this book. Well, guess what? You can go buy it shabbydollhouse.com. You can look it up on Amazon. There's other sites if you want to go buy Sebastian's book. Read the book, come back, listen to it, listen to this show. Or don't read the book and still listen to the show, and then buy the book, and then you'll understand what we're talking about. I would suggest go buying the book and reading the book. Read books in general, even if it's not this one. You know, I I should probably be promoting this book. I, I like I like the book. I enjoyed it. I enjoy many books, but I talk more about, I'm just gonna start the, I'm like digging myself into a hole here. Just gonna start the show. So Sebastian's, he's been published in X-Ray. He's been published in Hobart. He's been published in, I th- uh, believe, Shabby Del House. I think that was his first publication. Like okay, so for not I, I think you said you were like wanting to sell like one hundred books, mm-hmm. and that's a pretty good number. What do you, what is your expectation for this, or what are you wanting to sell?
1: Um, I suppose a hundred again would be great. Yeah, uh, I mean, it, ten thousand would be. What I'm really. I, after <laughs> no I mean I, you know the thing is I was actually just talking about this with uh, are we recording by the way yeah oh, okay um, I was just talking about this with a friend and um, yeah the reality is that you know when you when you publish something with a small press um, and you know you're sort of doing a DIY um, it, there's only so much of a marketing apparatus that you have at your disposal Unless you, you know, hire a, a private publicist or something, which as far as I understand can cost as much as like, I don't know, $10,000 or something. So <laughs> most people can't afford that. So, you know, outside of that, all you really have is posting about it on social media and word of mouth. And um, the latter of that, I think, takes some time to, to build up. Um, so I think my expectations are pretty modest um i I feel thankful that anybody wants to read it. you know I mean even a few people a handful of people uh would be amazing and a hundred that's a nice round number and also way more people than I could fit in my house, so that's a lot of people yeah. uh yeah. but you know yeah compared to compared to um like a major press, that would obviously be very little but um but yeah i mean I, I i to a certain degree i also think that worrying too much about how many copies sells or who reads it or whatever else um can end up functioning as a distraction uh, oh, I with, bet, yeah. Well, with regards like, to your next work and yeah what yeah yeah what you should be focusing on yeah
0: well like in school i guess in colleges they never ever talk about what your expectations are or like what a good number even is like when i heard you say that like 100 number for not i i had no idea like what people even received or got or how many books like what a good number was or not so
1: yeah yeah i guess it is um yeah somewhat relative um yeah i I remember i i worked at harper collins uh very 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 briefly whoa Ago, um, I was really a temp, uh, and so it's still cool though. Yeah, it was um, it was interesting seeing that world from the inside for a little bit. Uh, but as an employee, I had access to um, to like the software that they use to track sales, and even there, even at a big press uh, like Harper I was surprised by. In, I remember looking up. A random author of literary fiction. And I remember this book when it had come out, it had a fair amount of uh, buzz, you know, like people writing about it, book reviews and whatever else. And I think that the book had sold something like a thousand copies. Um, and I was just kind of stunned because I, I would have thought it would have been like, I don't know, yeah, ten thousand or something. Yeah. Um, but it actually did not sell very well at all. Um and and then, yet yeah, you would compare it to when I was working uh, there at the time. The Divergent books had just come out, which is sort of like a Hunger Games knockoff that Harper Collins published. Um, and and that book series was like carrying eighty percent of their sales. I mean, wow. it's like you know. Mm. So yeah, it's 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 weird. I, you know, I, I don't think anybody really understands it uh, very well. Um, so yeah. do you try to? Like come up with ideas to try
0: to market yourself because I know like Tommy Pico the poet like he he starts like doing like single event podcasts like when he has a book coming up. Mm-hmm. Has that ever occurred to you to like um, do something like that?
1: No, I, I think I mean I feel like this is probably the case for a lot of writers. Um, I I, f- I feel sort of averse to like marketing, a um, uh, uh, something that you've really spend a lot of time on as like a product, you know, I mean, obviously it is, mm-hmm. it's not like it's unavoidable to not to a certain degree, think of it like that. But um, yeah, I, I just, you know, more than anything, I suppose my concern has always been to kind of communicate clearly what the work um, could mean to a prospective reader. You know, uh I, I think a lot of times people hate being, compared to like oh if you like x and y writer then you like this or whatever but often enough you know i think that those are useful um shorthands for hey you know this book is in a certain tradition or at least has elements of a certain tradition and if you're excited and interested in that then you know it might be worth your time to read it and so that's always how i thought about it um i've never yeah i've never had any kind of like maybe I just don't have the mind for it marketing (laughs) events or gimmicks or whatever. Um, And yeah, but I mean, it's okay. (laughs) But like a lot of writers too, are like very like, you know, introverts
0: and they spend all their time Mm -hmm. writing and reading. So, you know, when it's time to come market a book, they've never done anything like that. It's going to be a very odd experience to try and change your entire like personality. Like back (laughs) when, in like 2013, 2014, I was at Oklahoma State, my first round of that. I saw a lot of writers put out like poetry books and they could never like really even market their books when they were published because they would like just kind of tweet about it. Yeah. And I realized there's not a system set up for anyone to really do anything with their books. I mean, you kind of have to rely on podcasts like this and, you know, like a, it maybe like get picked up by other people. I'm like that's probably the best option. How did yeah. you get how did you get on other people?
1: Um the podcast? Yeah. The um, I think if I recall correctly, um I was talking to my friend Joey, who is friends with Brad, and said, Hey, do you want to be on other people? And I said, That sounds great. Um, and it was a really, really fun uh experience. Okay. Uh but with regards to what you were saying before, yeah, it does, you know, like you know when you go to like a restaurant, like Applebee's or something, and like the the server is like really overly enthusiastic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like I'm like uh, Zachary, and I'll be be your server. Yeah. Like it sort of feels like that. Like when you're promoting a book, mm-hmm. <laughs> like all you know, as you put it, like yeah, I don't really. Um, I mean, even readings, I can be kind of shy about, and so I don't have that kind of like public-facing um, spirit. Even though I'm a teacher, uh, but that's a very mm-hmm. different thing um, I don't have that public facing spirit. So like when, when it comes time to do that kind of promotion that you're talking about, it, it does feel unnatural. It does sort of feel artificial. Um, I mean, I, I do think that, you know, the, the best way, um, is to get widespread press coverage, you know, like having a feature about you in like New York magazine or whatever, like, you know, um, but those are the types of things that are typically reserved for the very um you know very popular writers and so besides that uh, yeah it's like um it's just social media and and podcasts appearances yeah. <laughs> so yeah.
0: you said that you don't or you said sometimes people don't like when like people compare your books to other people. How did how did you feel when I compared your book uh to The Confederacy of Dunces and Alice in Wonderland? I oh I didn't
1: I, I didn't see that. Uh-oh. Um um no no I, I mean what i was saying before is that it seems like a lot of times artists uh whether they're writers or musicians or whatever dislike it when they're compared to some other artist. Mm-hmm. like you know like hey this band sounds yeah. like pavement um i i on the other hand have actually never felt that way i mean it's like if, if somebody oh, yeah. <laughs> if something um something that i've done reminds you of something else that you like then i feel like that's a flattering comparison so uh, I actually, so I've never read Alice in Wonderland, and I've never read what was it you said, Confederacy of Dunces? Yeah, I've never read that one either. Uh, I've heard good things about both, um, and I kind of get the general like vibe about both of them, and so I, I understand the comparison. Um, yeah. What when you were writing this,
0: because I was listening to your uh, Brad Listy interview, and you said you mm. had, uh, like, you had you have like stacks of books, and when you're writing, you're like will read, like, a page of something that you like, and then you'll sit down and write. What books were you using when you were writing this?
1: Oh, yeah, that's a, that's a good um, question. I, I actually um, do have a list, and oh. and it's... Um, hold on, let, let me pull it up here. So, uh, in the back of the book, uh, Lucy had this idea, essentially, of, of doing uh, liner notes. mm mm-hmm um and so there's like a qr code in the back of the book and um if you scan it with your phone it'll bring you to this page which i'm pulling up on my phone right now um and i wrote about some of the books that um were influential to me and so i guess i don't know if this is boring but i can just list list them and just briefly say say what i liked about them so um, one of them was uh, a novel called The Posthumous Memoirs of Bras Cubas by Machado de Assis, who is a Brazilian writer from the 19th century. Um, and it's a really funny, strange book that um, has a sort of confessional attitude in these really short chapters. And that the, the conceit is that um, the protagonist has died and he's talking about his life. Um, and that's all I'll say about that. But I really love that book. Um, two other books that, uh, really influence the second half of the novel, uh, which is written as a stage drama are the flight of Icarus by Raymond Canoe and the water statues by Fleur jagi And, uh, essentially, you know, they're both novels that use the architecture of drama in, in their work. You know, it's, so it's not, it's not like a, a, a play script, which is obviously meant to be acted and performed. Um, it's it's arranged like a drama but it's meant to be read and so that obviously allows for a bit more playfulness especially in terms of like stage directions and that kind of stuff um, another uh, book that uh, I, I felt influenced me was the descent of alette by Alice Notley um, and that it has a kind of almost cartoonish and video game like um, quality to some of its images um but it doesn't mean that it's not serious it's a very serious book i i I love it um i've taught it before uh but yeah that's always a book that stayed with me um how is it like video game well because it it has a very kind of linear uh sorry linear uh uh sense of progress like and and she the 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 main the protagonist in that book is essentially you know fighting a big boss at the end right the tyrant um and so uh and there's there's like these weird little side quests i I do think that there there is like a video game like quality to that book um whether or not alice Notley enjoys or has ever played video games yeah (laughs) i don't know i maybe uh maybe doubt um did you see that recent tweet of hers no i don't follow her um she she tweeted something like like apple fuck you you moved the like uh the comma key like <laughs> wow. it was like it was like yelling at apple support was, i think amazing um anyway i'm gonna continue there's only like four four or five more of these books um michael kohlhaus by heinrich von kleist and thanks by pablo kachadian and both of them um what I drew from them is is that they, they have like a relentless narrative pace. Um, like it's always sort of moving um, almost in high speed or something. and so i, I wanted uh, I wanted my book to also have um, a feeling of of sort of endless progression. And what I mean is that there's rarely moments of of in, in, like introspection or flashback. Um, it's always sort of pivoted toward it's terminus. Um, yeah. That's something that I noticed, especially within the end
0: pages. I could feel yeah, that. Like it's- yeah.
1: Yeah. I'm glad. Um, yeah. It was it definitely, um, it, it's a book that I, I would hope somebody could read in like two sittings. And, um, and those two sittings my my hope would be, would be close to each other. Um, and so one way to create that effect, I think is through uh, quick, you know, narrative progression. Um, Other books, uh, Malcolm by James Purdy, just because it has a big cast of characters and the way he handles that, I I think is really kind of funny uh, and unique. Um, A High Wind in Jamaica by Robert Hughes, which is an English novel, like mid-century. There's a really wonderful pig character in that book. And the, the pig character in my own book is sort of a small... Homage to it. Um, and the last two uh, are The Notebook by Agoda Kristof, which is a Hungarian novel, uh, which is really strange, uh, has a very off kilter sense of humor, uh, even though it talks about some pretty serious things. And the last one is probably the most famous in this list uh, Waiting for Godot by Samuel mm-hmm. Beckett. Um, I reread it while I was working on it and um, I was just struck by how. Much stranger it was than I remembered it being. You know, I read it for the first time when I was probably like in college or something. And then, um, you know, it's obviously a a classic of of, uh, theater. Um, But the yeah, the dialogue was even uh, more unexpected than I remembered, and so that definitely influenced, uh, especially the penultimate scene in my book. Yeah, when they're the clowns, yeah, talking to each other. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So when you're when you're writing
0: and you said you wanted like this to feel like fast and go through like a quick progression of events mm. when you're writing, does it take you a long time to write it that way
1: or is mm. that normal to you? Uh, I would say it's totally, um, totally different depending on the project. So for example, salmon took me quite a long time. I started it in um, two thousand twenty. And then rewrote it completely from scratch. Wow. In two thousand twenty one. so you like threw it out? Yeah. Yeah. It was a totally different book the first what time. The,
0: what did the first version look like?
1: Um, in the first version, uh, the protagonist actually makes it to salmon and lives in a schoolhouse and um is just sort of a miserable teacher and hasn't isn't very successful. Um And so it kind of has the same spirit of of this person trying to make this big change in their life that they're unable to kind of commit to. But Mm -hmm. um, what I found was that when I was writing through this draft, I I just was just writing one vignette after another. Like it just didn't feel like it, it was leading toward anything interesting or exciting and it, I sort of, I, I found myself dreading writing it. Every time I sat down, I sort of had this feeling like, like, all right, what's going to happen next? Um, well, when I when I, reading- when I had that feeling, I, I I realized, well, if if I feel this way about the book, then like I can't expect a a reader to care about it. So that's when I knew I had to restart from the beginning.
0: There's a point in the book when I was reading it, and I said to myself, well, if it, if it if the character keeps acting this way, I'm gonna get bored. And it, it was when he, the little kid comes up to him and asks for money, and he kind of just ignores the kid and keeps yeah. looking straight forward. And I thought, I thought that was hilarious, and I loved the character at that point from the beginning to then. But I'm like, if this, if he doesn't break or have a character change at some point, I felt yeah. like I would get kind of bored of this attitude. And All like it. within the next vignette. He totally does have this break or change when, like, he gets down on all fours and is like crawling around the uh, train. Cause right. he saw these two kids like fighting, and you know, he kind of feels he kind of like has this youthness. He's kind of reminded of this youthness and like acting like a creature now. I just love that. I love that break.
1: Thank you. I, I, uh, I appreciate that. Yeah. I mean, as a character, um, the protagonist is certainly like uh, comedic in that he is obviously has a very high sense of like self regard, but mm-hmm. at every turn is sort of treated like an animal himself, um, and just kind of kind of conveniently ignores it or misinterprets it. And so um, that's a fair point that that like it, it is it is sort of. Um, like the book of Job or something where it's like something bad happens to Job and then something worse happens to him. And then something even worse than that happens to him. So it does have that, that, um, that progression. Certainly. Um, it's this, like this
0: journey of self discovery. Cause he's literally like traveling to like discover this new land and he's discovering himself and he's going on this journey of like mm-hmm. the self. And like, as he tries to get to this place of salmon, it, all these things happen to him that he does not expect. And like right. some new situations and things like that
1: yeah um i also i also wanted um wanted the book to in terms of plot um all of the change um that w- would be the effect of something that the main character would do would be an accident and so mm-hmm. you know like a part of that i guess is is maybe poking fun at, at his attitude where it's like, even when you do do something with purpose, it, you know, it doesn't turn out how you want it to. Um, like I, I don't want to spoil the ending for pers- uh, prospective readers, but, um, you know, that he, he, him and the, the other character who happens to have my name, um, yeah. uh, take these mushrooms and then they, they have this sort of psychedelic experience. And then it, you find out that while they were under the influence of this, um, uh, mushroom they ended up doing something which i'm not going to say um but you know even then it's not like something that he did with intention It's it was just the side effect of of this other thing uh and so yeah there is this kind of sense of like um he's in unable to to really take full ownership of his life even though that's the thing that he wants most
0: so the mushrooms were supposed to be like psychedelic mushrooms
1: yeah i mean i, I kind of left it a little um a little ambiguous, there's a mention earlier, uh, in the book where, that there, are you know, in this world, uh, where the book takes place, that there are all of these different kinds of mushrooms. Some can make people really aggressive. Some can make them into kind of like lemmings who can be mm-hmm. convinced to do whatever, you know, uh, and others are just, you know, more kind of psychedelic in the sense that we are familiar with. Uh, and so, yeah, I guess the suggestion in the book is that this particular mushroom is a combination of some of those things like it's both both you know puts puts him in a fugue state and um, unexpectedly also makes him like really violent although he wasn't aware
0: because there's one scene where you have like a conch shell and there's a a candle in it and like this shell just like kind of moves around the room on its own and I felt like you had created this odd this kind of a randomness metaphor for this these like uh, organic mushrooms that like kind of control things at random and just create random events and like we'll just take things away at will
1: you know so um that part of the book I, I didn't realize this until like when i was almost finished working on it and the way that i realized it was that you know i don't know if you have a facebook account but um one of the things that it does is that it'll show you like oh this is a post that you wrote you know a year ago or two years ago, three years ago or whatever. And so it showed me one of these posts and it was a dream that I had that I wrote about like once in a while, you know, write about if I had an interesting dream and in this dream, I was at a party um, and somebody brought a bottle of absinthe called uh, Gerard de Nerval it was a, a French poet who I don't even think I've read. Um, so like that, it's already kind of a funny thing that my dream there is this, absinthe called this after a poet and the the special thing about this absinthe with it if you drank it it would make you disappear for like a few seconds and then you would reappear and so it, it, it was like a like a party trick thing that people were doing like people would take a swig of the absinthe they would disappear and then they'd reappear and then everybody laughed and in the dream somebody passed me the bottle and i said no i can't do it and they said why not and i said i i I think that if I were to drink it, it, I would disappear for good. And they're like, "Come on, you're being unreasonable." And I said, "No, I, I won't. I refuse." And I like left the party, and then I woke up. That was the dream. So I wrote about this um, in the in the book. When the protagonist arrives at this uh, mysterious island, he discovers that there is this mushroom on the island that has the strange effect of uh, disappearing objects and then having them reappear in different places. It has like this almost, uh, I don't know, um, telekinetic ability or something like that. Uh, and the Islanders don't really understand it. It seems kind of random. There's a suggestion that it's like a, the mushroom is like a kind of deity or something like that. And so, um, so, you know, one of the things that the protagonist and everybody else on the Island deals with is that like randomly out of nowhere, things will just disappear and then reappear. Um, and so, I think you know, I, I I'm not so sure. It of course is going to have for every reader some kind of um metaphoric weight. I'm not so positive myself what exactly it is. I I knew that it felt right. Um and I knew that I it needed to be a central part of the second part of the story. Um but
0: I felt like it was a metaphor for like creative life or something like when you're like going through life that people will you know die and like things just disappear and like there's no reason why right and you it's just fucking random
1: yeah i think that's a really great um point i i i can see that absolutely um but more than anything what i was surprised uh by is is that as i was finishing the book i would you know i logged onto facebook one day and then i saw this dream mm-hmm. and i realized oh my god i this dream is absolutely what gave me the idea for this mushroom thing. So I, I think it's funny that the idea of it itself disappeared from my consciousness you <laughs> and, know. and then reappeared sometime later. So I think you're onto something. I think you're probably right.
0: And then there was this other character, this, uh, this flutist who had quit right. uh, doing, he was like this great flutist. And then he quit like a long time ago. And now he just like works on this Island yeah. and he's still great. And I felt like that was also, a way of like talking about creative life and how he was really he had this life of uh, when he was being creative and like he
1: had stopped and he had kind of forgotten it yeah
0: a, like a death in a way
1: i i'm glad you picked up on that because that is definitely something i was i was thinking about one of the one of the faults of the protagonist i'd say is that um he has a lot he puts a lot of stock in terms of of his position in the world, right? Mm -hmm. Like what his title is. Yeah. Um, Like he's, he thinks of himself as a great poet and his life um, would only be successful if he actually attains that status in a real way. Um, And that this is of course a kind of foolish way to go about your life um, that, you know, you you, you can't depend on those things for your sense of happiness and self-worth and all of that. And so that character is definitely someone who, yeah, he, um, he was his flutist, uh, yeah, flautist. I don't, I don't even know <laughs> what is it. Flautist, flutist. I don't know what do not know what person, person of flute. Um, and uh, he loses his flute, so he's like, well, I guess I can't do that anymore. And he doesn't really seem particularly bothered by it. And so, yeah, sort of a comedic, comedic counterpoint, I suppose, to the main character.
0: Yeah, the main character, like his whole desire is just to be like this adult and go to work in the school and like that's what he wants to do like for the rest of his life and it seems like such an opposite from like other books that like people are stuck in like these boring places and they want to go like live these extravagant lives he's very much the opposite where he wants to just go be like an adult and like live an adult life mm-hmm. but like all these like wild things happen to him and i really like that reversal that you have in your book
1: thank you yeah i actually you know it's funny i didn't even think about that but you're right uh that is a kind of uh interesting um yeah, reversal, as you put it.
0: And so, when I messaged you, I was talking about uh, how I thought it was kind of like you're doing a parody of autofiction because mm. you have this character named Sebastian that comes into the yeah. story. And usually, people with autofiction, they create like a very like flimsy uh, self that's basically based off them. And I felt yeah. like you were doing a parody because you have this other character that you kind of created this poet character. Maybe it's based off you, maybe it's not. But then you literally created yourself and you put him into the story. And then I thought the character was just going to be there for like a vignette or for a chapter, but he's there like the entire book throughout.
1: Yeah. Really good friends. I love that part. Thank you. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So for uh, listener context, if you haven't read the book, um, there's the protagonist who is not named. um, And then about maybe a third of the way through he meets, uh, a young man named Sebastian who uh, looks exactly like him, so he's sort of like a doppel doppelganger. Um, and um you know i've I, I've done this before in other work, and i I'm, i probably I probably will continue to do it for a little bit, um, although I can sort of see myself getting sick of it eventually. but um so for example the 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 book that i'm finishing right now the main character is also named sebastian uh except he spells it with an accent over the a and i don't Mm -hmm. um and he's also not me (laughs) uh but um you know i i i think of i I think about the way that um writers now sort of have to trade on their image um and I, i suppose writers have always done this but with with social media in particular and how how uh seemingly prominent it is for most writers in terms of how they promote their work and how they, um, um, yeah, just share share what they do with other people. It seems now that, that, you know, those writers themselves become sort of personas or characters that readers have, um, mentally, you know, when they engage with their work. And so, um, and so I, I kind of I, I find that situation interesting, especially for somebody who might not necessarily always want to write autobiographical fiction. Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. Like I would say, Salmon is much more, you know, a uh, uh, purely fictive than autobiographical. Um, but I, I like the idea of of playing with that contemporary reader's expectation of the writer, you know, indulging their public image um, and. The way and how and how you can sort of plant a red herring by putting your own name. Um, I, I've somebody once asked me like why why is this character named Sebastian in a different work, and I said, well, it's the first name I think of when I think of names uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> since my own. Um, but but yeah, so similarly, you know, it's like obviously I understand that readers are are. You know, even if it's somebody who doesn't know me at all or whatever is going to see the name on the cover is Sebastian, and then there's a character, there's going to be some mm-hmm. some kind of like conflation. But I, at the same time, try to, uh, yeah, like run run against that expectation. Um, yeah. Even though, like in the book, like they're basically the same.
0: Like you said, it's like his doppelganger. So yeah, people are going to compare you to this character
1: right yeah it, i sort of um i, I kind of you know that meme of the two people on the, on the bus and one is yeah, yeah like really miserable and the other one <laughs> is yeah i, I kind of see their situation sort of like that like uh you know even when they arrive on the island um sebastian the, the character takes to it kind of easily um or at least he sort of feels like well this is my situation and i better just make the best of it uh whereas um the protagonist is much more concerned with continuing to fulfill the sort of predetermined um, role for himself. Like, no, I'm supposed to go to salmon and I'm supposed to become a great poet there. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is unacceptable to me. And so it's maybe yet another device in the book to sort of make fun of the main character, <laughs> to torture <laughs> him a little bit.
0: The thing about him being a poet though, he is, he is actually a pretty good poet. Like when you have him talking, there's some lines in here that are pretty good. Like he says, like, like, boredom creates mischief or there's a line that Mm -hmm. basically summarizes that point i just thought he was pretty good he's a pretty good poet but i wanted to talk about uh back when i was talking about the break in the character Mm -hmm. when he started like crawling around like when you're writing this how do you did you map it out first are you just like writing the events as you are progressing
1: how you yeah actually so um you were asking me before about like, how long it took to write this versus mm-hmm. other things. And so what's funny is that so with, with this book, Salmon, I mapped out everything, like every single scene, chapter, well in advance. Um, and it took me really, really long. And, um, and the book is not that long. It's, it's like 25,000 words or something. Um, the uh, book that I wrote immediately afterwards that I'm finishing the final draft of right now uh, is a little longer and I wrote it in like a third of the time. Um, it just and I didn't plan anything. It just every single day I sat down and some new progression came to me. Um, and so um, I, I just found that kind of funny because it's like you know a lot of the times you hear, if you want to make definitive progress on your book, like you have to outline it and it's like, well, sometimes and then sometimes not. Um, for for salmon though there there is actually a kind of secret, uh, constraint that I used no. to, to write it. Um, I, I don't, I, I'm still, I mean, I, I've been, I've been coy about not talking about it, but I guess it really, it doesn't matter because, um, yeah, I mean, who, who, no one's going to notice it. It's, it's sort of, uh, too, too obscure to notice, but, um, essentially, uh, each chapter or each four, every four chapters follow a structure where, um, in the first chapter, uh, the narrator is just sort of narrating directly to the reader. In the second chapter, um, he is uh, speaking to one other person. In the third chapter, uh, he speaks to two other people. And the fourth chapter, he speaks to three people. And then that repeats over and over again. And in the second part, every single scene has four characters in it. And so, um, part of part of the kind of thematic work of the book is is that this person. Can't uh, manage to to successfully deal with everyday life, you know, just the everydayness uh, and repetition of that. And so, one way that I wanted the form to repeat or to, to mirror that that repetition was by having this sort of character dialogue structure, because I think, you know, what is everyday life uh, mostly filled with is often just speaking to other people. Um, so. Mm-hmm. So that was one of the navigating things that that I used to to write the book.
0: How do you come up with these structures and these constraints? Do you just like come up with them as you're like pre-doing it? And then while you're doing it, do you want
1: to break it? Like, I don't want to do this anymore. Yeah. um, Like my, yeah, I guess maybe this is not such a satisfying answer. Like uh, sometimes it's, I I have it totally predetermined. Um, Other times uh, it, it comes to me as I, as i'm writing it and then i go back to the beginning and like reinstall it wow um and uh yeah like so with uh my previous book not i um i i had the structure like uh, it has a very specific constraint yeah. and i had that i had that like already completely 100 percent done um before i even wrote the book and i don't actually remember how it came to me um I think I, I I had the idea of just writing a, a book that sort of would imitate like a, a grammar book for a ESL learner or something like that. So for this one, um, I, I yeah, I didn't. I similarly didn't. Uh, the first draft, the one that I ended up abandoning, didn't have the structure at all. And the second draft, uh, uh did. But I, to be honest, because I started it back in 2020, I don't <laughs> I don't remember uh, how I came up with it. Were there any points when you're writing where you're like, oh this is too silly, I can't do this? <laughs> um yeah, that is a concern sometimes because it's like when you when you indulge that kind of silliness, it's like you're you're uh, threatening like the possibility of there ever being like something really um emotionally resonant hap- that that happens. Um and I mean, I think that for a book like this it's a picaresque it's a it's a travel book it's very lighthearted. i was sort of i made peace with the fact that it's just sort of silly from beginning to end um the the thing that i'm working on now is, is a little I, I would say actually yeah way more serious um so was there any yeah. point
0: where it's too silly you are know, like i can't i gotta take this out um
1: <laughs> yeah um in the first draft, it's it's not in the book. Uh, in the first draft, um, the protagonist receives a letter from home, and uh, the. Uh, the caretaker that he he leaves with his parents is the writer of the letter. And he's like, yeah, like I accidentally killed your parents. Uh, (laughs) Uh, But like talking about like his tone in the letter is like, he's annoyed that he has to write this letter, even though he's responsible for the deaths of these two elderly people that he's supposed (laughs) to be taking care of. Um, And, you know, I remember reading, reading it back. I, like, after I wrote it, I thought it was like a little too silly, but also I, I just couldn't find a place to put it in the, the final draft so I, I didn't include it um that would make a great sequel <laughs> yeah yeah mm-hmm. maybe maybe i'll do that same into um but yeah i mean i think i think um in terms of the question in terms of like when is it when do things get too silly um it's something that you approach in the editing process right because like when you're one of my favorite anecdotes about kafka is um how his sister or somebody uh would often hear him when he was writing in his room, just like laughing out loud to himself as he was writing. Um, you know, people think of Kafka as this very like dour and like depressing guy, but like, yeah. And a lot of his work is really funny. Um, and so similarly, like, yeah, when I write stuff like this, it's like, it's just, it's, it's funny to me. Um, I, I, I It's really amusing. And um, it's one thing to be amused in the moment of composition. And then of course, when you go back and be like, okay, does this actually work or, you know, because you know, being amusing in the moment is great, and that's satisfying you know, in that moment of writing. But, um, of course, you have in mind the fact that other people are going to read this. And so that joke might not work anymore. Do you try to apply it to the characters and the overall structure of the story and the narrative? Um, yeah, I mean, I think I think uh, the, char- the way the, the character functions in this book is a little... Uh, uh, unusual maybe one of my friends um zach uh read an earlier version and he gave me some notes and he he said um all of the characters sort of seem the same like (laughs) they're all Mm -hmm. they all seem the same and i said and, and that's when i realized i had to lean into that even harder um because for me character in this book functions as like an opportunity for dialogue rather than an entry point into like psychological portrait um because those two, those are things that are very different. You know, it's like um, I'm thinking about, for example, have you ever seen any uh, Coen Brothers movies? Yeah, yeah. Um, there is a, a video essay I, I watched on uh, YouTube, like I don't know, a few months ago or whatever. Um, that talked about how they're they're great at writing secondary characters, um, and it's true. Like characters that are in the movie only for one scene, maybe. That who who function great and it's usually it's because that character has a sort of um, comedic function or uh, they only exist to deliver a a single line of dialogue. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I that was sort of how I approached character in this book. I would say the only two real characters are the protagonist and Sebastian. Um, Everyone else is sort of I don't want to say that they're caricatures, but they, they are kind of um, opportunities for speech to emerge on the page rather than representations of uh, people. Well, I think you had to do that
0: if you're going to move quickly throughout the book. You can't exactly. focus too yeah. much on one character.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, and um, I'm trying to think of an example from the book that would be a useful... Um, <clears throat> Yeah like so i mentioned before uh that the protagonist leaves uh his elderly parents in the care of this sort of random kid who lives in in their town mm-hmm. um and um part of the the i don't know the joke of that scene is that this kid is like not somebody you would, you would leave uh, with your parents. And, uh, you know, furthermore, when he arrives uh, to receive instructions about what to do, he, like, is totally um, uninterested in, in, in the work. Um, and so, you know, he delivers essentially what's a punchline. And so it's like, yeah, I, I don't really need to do much with this character other than to use him as a kind of um, a device for or a joke in this scene.
0: Yeah, I like the part where you have the you have the golden child and then you have these like wrangly ruddy boys. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. they're all like combating off. And then you, you, I started questioning myself, like, oh, why is the golden child like golden? Like he could just be these other boys. It's like how they grew up and how people <laughs> think of them and all this stuff.
1: Yeah. Um yeah, so the golden golden boy uh golden character boy. is um is sort of uh Kind of like a a little lord fauntleroy character like mm-hmm. fussy and like uh quote-unquote educated ass. yeah 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 very a little pompous and um i suppose yeah his foil are, are uh i call them the ruddy gang of children in the book and uh even though it's multiple children i write them as one entity um which is a a, a thing that i stole admittedly from donald barthelme um in the school, it's a short story of his. Uh, it's about a teacher who works at the school where all of these things keep dying. And at the very end, his students question—they're all like little kids. They question him about what's going on, but they—they they speak as one, you know. And it's—it's it's like a Greek choir or something. It's funny. Um, and so I—I I wanted to have the same effect um, in in uh, in this book. And I, I also think that, it, you know, I, I introduced them as a a way to sort of characterize something about this island where it's like, there's a, a, a suggestion that a lot of the people there are sort of political refugees, um, but there's also like something kind of uh, debaucherous about the island and like mm-hmm. uh, sort of... Uh, Magical, like you know, like Shakespeare's The Tempest, like that type of thing. Um, and so these were, you know, just the I- the idea of like these like nasty ass kids <laughs> running around, just like breaking things, as like a feature, a everyday feature of the island. You know, uh, struck me as a kind of kind of a fun thing to include.
0: Why did why at the end did you have the two characters like? Maybe I shouldn't be asking you this, but when mm. they like depart, like Sebastian became one of the dead tigers, mm. and then the poet became a fish.
1: Yeah, I mean, so um yeah, well, I it's I, I feel okay spoiling the ending, why not? Okay. Um but yeah, so so the Sebastian character becomes a tiger, and there's a suggestion that um therefore the tigers that were originally on this island were also people who had maybe eaten this mushroom. Um and the main character uh decides to become a fish. You know, he can't handle everyday life as a human being. So the better thing to do is to become a fish and swim away. Um, but I, I suppose the the sort of um, humor, or uh, maybe even the cynicism of that final gesture, is that uh, in that chapter, uh, Golden Boy and his father are fishing in the ocean, and the narrator says, "Okay, life as a human doesn't work out, so I'm going to go become a fish." And then he willingly puts himself <laughs> into the ocean where two oh, people are fishing. Are you going to catch that? Yeah.
0: It's pretty good. Thanks. <laughs> I like the I also like I so many parts of this book, but with the with the, the the rocks and they have like they have eyelids, right? But the they're closed or something. Or maybe they don't have eyelids, but they're closed.
1: Mhm.
0: There's something that's like <laughs> it didn't make sense to me but it was hilarious. Thank you. Yeah, it's with yeah. the, the mouths it's... like they carbonate the alcohol from their mouths
1: yeah i wanted i wanted to be sort of particular about what magical elements i gave the island um and so i guess that yeah the two main ones are this kind of weird mushroom uh that exists on it and the rocks that that uh have moving mouths that uh if you submerge in water makes transforms the water into alcohol um and i think that i think if i recall correctly and i should be able to recall since i wrote the book i think those are the only two magical quote-unquote magical things in it and so um that that felt kind of appropriate that you know even that has its limits it's not like there's a million there's like wizards on the island or whatever um or in fact there is one but he he's really just a sideshow like performer he's not a real wizard (laughs)
0: <laughs> I thought he was going to do magic at some point with that. Yeah, the yeah. golden boy was like railing on him for being a sideshow <laughs> act. Yeah, I started to feel yes. empathy for the wizard. I'm glad. <laughs> yeah, the rock part, the rocks
1: with the alcohol, that reminded me of like a Willy Wonka-esque. Uh, mm. Yeah, it, it, it definitely does have, uh, now that you mention it, it has a kind of Willy Wonka-esque uh, attitude, like the whole book. Um, uh, there was something else I wanted to say. Oh also you know the the reason another reason for these rocks is that I I wanted to connect something from the first part and and um and the protagonist uh before leaving for this journey essentially uh works at a liquor store he himself doesn't drink uh, and he sort of has a miserable time of it and so um he essentially is is put to work in the same way you know even on this far away uh, sort of uh, magical island and speaking of auto fiction if there is one one thing that oh yeah uh, you worked in a wine <laughs> I, I, I did I did work in a liquor store when I uh, graduated college and I was pretty depressed when I was there so maybe something there influenced it um, I, I was this was only a few years after the financial crash and so jobs were still really hard to come by I remember that I had applied to something like, I don't know, a hundred jobs and I never heard back from anybody. And then a friend of mine who worked at a liquor store said, Hey dude, I can get you a part-time shift at this liquor store. And you know, I paid something like $10 an hour off the books. And it, it was just one of those things where it's like, man, I'm like, $35,000 Thirty-five thousand dollars in debt. I just graduated from college, and I'm like <laughs> making ten bucks an hour. Like I'm doing the same thing I could have done. Like you know, I don't know mm-hmm. when I was sixteen, um, and so that was a that was a pretty. Uh, I don't know. I don't want to say it was like a low point because it wasn't. It was just like one of those experiences of youth where you're just like, "What the hell am I doing? Where am I going? I don't know what to do with my life." Um, you know, actually, this is. Uh, Kind of a funny coincidence um to lucy who mm-hmm. essentially is shabby dollhouse uh was also the first person to ever publish me back in 2012 um and um it was a short story mm-hmm. and i remember um i've shared the story with her on her, with her. Yeah, yeah. So maybe this is repetitive of me, but that's. I oh, know, okay.
0: because you can tell it.
1: Yeah. Um. But I, I remember I had just gotten an, a, a smartphone for the first time. I was a late comer to it. Um, and I was, yeah, I was just uh, amused. At it. I was like, oh, wow, I can like check my email at work. That's funny. Um, and uh, I, I remember I was at the liquor store when I got the email from Lucy saying that she would like to publish my first story. And I just remember. You know just feeling uh, so overwhelmed by joy, like I, I think to this day it is it's still like the happiest I've ever felt from like an acceptance, and I think it's because it was the first one. Um, and so it's very funny that now you know, <laughs> <to> <laughs> did you ele- know 11, 11 years later? Sorry, did you know Lucy? Were you like familiar? That, no, not at all. I, I just uh, I saw that Shabby Dollhouse as a magazine had just started, and I At that point had been writing for about a year and a half two years and was feeling uh courageous enough to submit stuff um and because it was a magazine that had just started and it seemed to be run by someone who was my age it felt more welcoming than like submitting to the you know big ass university review or like who knows if anybody would even read it um and so no i didn't i didn't know uh lucy at all so when you started like
0: did you take yourself like i'm gonna start writing seriously did that start in college
1: or did that start post-college um i started about um maybe like a year before i graduated i i first started with the poetry actually uh, i was really influenced uh, or inspired i guess i should say by frank o'hara and uh, kenneth Koch and the other new york school poets um Just because a lot of their poems seemed kind of simple, like they just sort of seemed like poems about walking around and seeing something interesting and having a thought about it. And that was very attractive to me because up to that point, I had always thought that poetry was uh, reserved for, you know, geniuses who had uh, deep thinking and could offer it up in really ornate lyrical language. And so that seemed like totally impossible Um, so I started with, with uh, poetry and then I I guess I realized, um, the more I wrote and the more I read, um, that I was more interested in narrative. Um, and that in fact, all of the poems that I did write were narrative poems. And so it just seemed natural to start writing fiction. But when I started, I I think that it took me a full year before I even finished a story because what I would do is that I would start something. I would write like three or four paragraphs and then I would have no idea what else to write. And then I would just stop yeah. and then start something else. And so it took like a year or so, just like false starts um, before I, yeah, I, I actually started committing to like seeing a story through to the end.
0: So what's your advice to people that do that? Like how do they get to the end of the story?
1: Um, You know, I, I I guess I would say finish it even if it sucks. <laughs> I feel like mm. it's it's not that people... And I, I mean, I feel like this is the case with almost all art. It's not that you're incapable of finishing something or like, it's just that there's something so suggestive about starting a story or a project where it's like, so filled with possibility. It's, it's, it's more marked by what isn't in it yet. And by saying this is finished, you're sort of foreclosing the possibility that could it could rise above whatever it already is. And so that feels so intimidating and it feels like, yeah. Oh, you know, if I stop here, you know, then I, I I worked all those hours for something that wasn't really worth it, and that you know, so if I just leave it in limbo, there will always be the possibility that it's worth it. The irony, of course, being that it never leaves there, and you know, it just sort of stays in this uh, sort of notebook state. Um, and so, I suppose I would just say, yeah, just commit to ending it, and even if it if it stinks according to your standards. You know, take whatever didn't work in that story or poem or song or whatever and apply it to the next thing. You know, sort of instead of thinking of editing as having to keep reworking one project, think of it more uh, as a spirit that sort of will guide the next project. And when did you start using like self-constraints on your writing? Um, I suppose pretty much as soon as I, I encountered the like o- oily po writers and, and conceptual writing. And I, I, I was just very um, attracted by uh, a kind of formal, formal procedural ways of, of, of uh, creating arts because I had found the results of those. So uh, interesting. And I think when I first, especially when I first started writing, I, um, I was almost exclusively interested in what I guess you could call experimental work. Mm -hmm. Uh, I would, I would say that as I've gotten older and as I've written more, I've sort of ironically become more aesthetically traditional, like (laughs) in that, I mean, yeah, Salmon is admittedly a kind of strange book, but, but, um, I don't know. Like I, 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 I actually really like, um, well-written uh, traditional novels with like clear structures. Um, yes, me ju- too. Just as but, much as I like experimental work.
0: <laughs> I like traditional novels, but then when I go and write, it's very like experimental and doesn't make any sense. And that's what I like to thing in this book is that like you gave the randomness a reason mm-hmm. with the mushrooms. Mm-hmm. So like when I'm writing, like I get, people have a problem with the randomness because it's just random and there's really no point. And I love
1: that you give it a reason. Thank you. I really appreciate that. It's very kind of you to say. Um, I, I think one way that I, uh, or one attitude uh, that I've uh, tried to embody that has helped me with that is something that I picked up from the Argentinian writer Cesar Aira, who says that uh, the way that he writes is um, he sits down and writes like two pages a day, mm-hmm. uh, or, you know, whenever he sits down to write. And then the next day, um, instead of going back and editing and recalibrating what he wrote, he just writes another two pages, but it has to configure whatever happened before into the present moment of writing in a way that sort of makes sense or that feels satisfying. And so, because I do think that a lot of writing is, like, um, is improvisatory. Like, Mm -hmm. uh, even fiction and novels, like, you, you know, you sit down and you, I don't know you're writing about a character and then you think okay now he's going to go to the store or whatever right like yeah. it just came to you um and and you, you see what comes from it and um I think part of the then the the challenge is being able to find a a reason why x character went to the store or um have something interesting happen because when they go there or whatever i know this is like very basic but but uh, i guess the point i'm trying to make is is um you almost sort of become a a puzzle builder with your own randomness like mm-hmm. you know I, an image came to you because it was attractive and so you just followed it not really knowing why it was attractive but um you can then sort of backtrack and and figure out why why that was you know and, and then fold that in right cuz of course you know when we when we do have strange and surreal images um We don't want them all to be like just totally random because then it just sort of feels like, why am I reading this? I don't don't know. I mean, it it really depends on the author, I suppose, and the project and all of that. But um, you do want it to you do want it to have some kind of internal coherence, right?
0: And when you're writing this, were you concerned about coming off smart? Because I feel like uh, I've heard a lot (laughs) of writers like when they first start out, they want to be known as like smart or something. But then as you gradually write more, you care less about being seen as smart
1: yeah i mean uh so um the first half of this book which is written in the first person um the narrator has a very elevated liter- literary voice uh it's mm-hmm. a very anachronic- anachronistic voice it's it's like the voice of of um the nineteenth century novel um yeah. and, I mean I would say that my one of my biggest influences in that respect is something like ishmael in in Moby Dick, you know, like that first that opening is so uh, so packed with like you know really um, far flung images and you know like whenever it's it's a damp drizzly November in my soul like this is very elevated quote unquote lyrical poetic language so yeah. I, I I wanted to write in that mode you know I wanted to have a narrator who spoke in in this sort of elevated manner but I wanted that to be part of the the sort of uh, um reason for being of the book. And so, you know, it's not just it's not just that I'm randomly writing in this kind of highfalutin way. It's it's that it, it, this character um sort of has a a very uh overblown regard of himself. And so of course he writes he writes like a 19th century narrator. Um, and so you know one thing that I did as I was um writing it is that I, anytime I came across a very interesting or unusual or even old fashioned word, I would write it down on my phone and I would try to include it into the text because of course, you know, he's going to be the type of person who does the same thing. And so mm-hmm. there's a few words that I remember. One is, um, which is like making your, uh, the hairs on your, your body rise, you know? Yeah. Uh, and I learned it from Malcolm Lowry from his novel under the volcano. And another one is the word tattered um which sort of I think means like kind of like raggedy, like something that's like uh in, in poor condition. Uh and I learned that word from the Machado de Assis novel um that I mentioned before, which is a 19th century novel. And so uh I was sort of like collecting these little bits of of kind of overblown language that I wanted to because you know it's not like when you're when you're sitting down to write, the word it doesn't yeah. come to you. You know, even if you know it, like it's not like a common word. It's it's a novelist's word, and so um, I would I would have to write these words down to remind myself to use them.
0: You should totally read *Confederacy of Dunces* because, like, that's the whole like the main character is like this overblown like he uses overblown language, and like he's mm-hmm. like this hot dog like salesman, and he's like overweight, and he's kind of commenting on things within i think like new orleans within like the 1900s it's a hilarious book i did not finish it but i just remember being awesome
1: yeah i've heard it's really funny um i should i should read it you're right i'll check it out
0: or just read the first half and get a sense of the character (laughs) yeah yeah you want to keep going or you need to check out
1: um yeah i i I guess since we've been at it for about an hour um yeah maybe it's like
0: seem like you have very like uh time constraints
1: (laughs) no i mean i i don't um i I, you know actually i'm I'm teaching a uh summer class Mm -hmm. this summer i I don't often get summer classes and um uh it's a class on the detective novel um and so i um it's online though so I, i have to like write up all these discussion questions and so that's something that I I need to get to later today, but um I'm I'm not like in a pressing rush. If if you have any of the questions, you know.
0: Yeah, I usually go for about ninety minutes.
1: Okay, yeah, so, sure. Let's go for like for twenty it. more minutes. Yeah, let's I think that
0: it. maybe you two, but because you write and you read a lot, like maybe you like hold that space of time more like important, and so you will try to like, end a discussion. Maybe I've seen people <laughs> do that.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's like not enough time you know yeah um, and the, but it, it, all of this reminds me of um of uh I, I recently read a quote i thought i found it really moving uh from martin scorsese who to be honest is not a director that i've i've particularly loved but like obviously he's a great you know mm-hmm. great director um and in it is a recent interview that he did and he said something like um you know he's old now he's in his 80s uh he has a new movie coming out it's probably gonna be you know if not his last one of his last i mean he's not gonna you know keep making work for much longer um and he he remembers that when kira kurosawa won a lifetime achievement award at the oscars he said something like only now you know do i see the potential of what cinema can be but it's too late like i've run out of time and scorsese in this interview says you know when i was a young man and i heard him say that I, i really didn't understand what he meant he dedicated his life to movies like how you know how could he think this and he says well now that i'm his age like i, I get it and uh, there's you know there's no more time and so um yeah that is something that like i've i've thought about where it's like i, I have a very uh kind of ravenous appetite for reading and and like there's so many books that i want to read and and in my house alone i have I counted the other day, and I'm embarrassed to say this, but I have 136 books in my reading like queue, you know, wow. <laughs> like books that I, and it's like those aren't even, you know, there's books that I don't own that I want to, and so it's like one of those things where like, well, I'm, I'm, there's no way that I can read all these books in this year. I probably want to be able to read them in two years, you know, mm-hmm. and so it's like one of those things where it's like, but I also want to, um. I write my own books and have a normal social life and, Mm -hmm. and I have to go to work and I have all these other things. And so, yeah, I do think that like, um, I probably have too much of an inclination to be a bit of a shut in hermit. Like this weekend, I didn't do anything. I just, yeah, I just read stuff and worked on writing, but yeah, it's sometimes you just sort of feel like, ah, man, I, uh, I don't know. Life is short. I (laughs) I feel like I'm not going to get to everything I want to get to. But do you have a routine? Like every day you sit down at a
0: certain time in a certain place, like in your house?
1: Uh, you know, I, I really... I, I, not exactly. Um, I do... If I if I have the time, I usually mm-hmm. get up and first thing in the morning is like I'll try to read for an hour or two and then work on my own writing for an hour or two. But obviously, that's not a luxury I have every day. Um, as a teacher, I, I do now have that time a little bit more. Um, mm-hmm. But... Um, but yeah, but you know, sometimes, um, especially with writing, I'll just have a minor requirement of myself, like oh, you know, make sure to sit down and like at least work on a good two, three, four paragraphs. Um, especially when it's a longer project. But mm-hmm. sometimes, sometimes I don't know. There's there's like fallow periods where like I just don't do anything. I don't I don't write anything for like months. And I don't. I, when I was younger. And that happened, I felt bad like I felt like, oh no, I'm being a fake writer like because I, I didn't write anything in the last like two months or three months or whatever. but uh, I, I then kind of realized like yeah, whatever it's it, it, you can't think that way. Um, you just have to sort of uh, you know make yourself available to the work when it comes knocking, but like also don't expect that it's gonna happen every single day. Um, yeah
0: do you ever like sit down, you like have your two hours? And at the end of the two hours, you like you want to keep writing, and you you sit down for like six hours, but then like the next day.
1: (laughs) No, actually, I've never had that. You know, because I um I I feel like it's too mentally exhausting that like after after writing for like even sometimes like an hour, I'm like that's it. Like I can't. I mean, I could keep doing it. It's not like I can't, but Mm -hmm. it's like you don't want to write garbage. Like you want to you want to be able to to feel like the work that you're producing is is I mean, so, so I know some writers do that whole thing where they like sit down and they just sort of do like word salad first draft and then they try to shape put that in the shape. But for me, like I, I don't know. Um I've tried that and it doesn't work. Like the first draft has to be has to have something good about it. like the writing has to be strong enough in that first draft. And so um so then, you know, I when I'm sitting down there, right, like I am concerned with making sure that it's, it, it is good enough. Uh, and so once I hit like an hour and a half or two hours and I sort of feel like my sentences are starting to take on, like the dog walked there, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like I'm like, all right, that's it. Like I'm done. I, I can't have any interesting thoughts right now. I like, I have to move on, uh, and do something else like cook dinner or whatever. But, um, but yeah, I, I know some, so I remember reading an interview with, uh, uh what's his name david mitchell i've never read him the english novelist he did cloud atlas and uh but yeah whatever um and i remember in the interview he said that when he writes like he writes for like 10 hours wow uh, and it's i mean his he, his books are really long and my, mine are really short so maybe that that tells you um the reason but um i i, I could just to me that would be t- torture <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it would just be it total torture i would never want to do that
0: and when you write do you write on like uh longhand
1: or you type it out no i always use a computer yeah i've tried doing longhand but it's just um especially when the thoughts start coming like my hand can't keep up you know whereas uh, on a computer i can so i i usually i I use the text edit app for the first draft because text edit looks really ugly and so like it convinces myself that it's like not serious you know and then once i finish that first draft i copy and paste it um to like yeah microsoft word and this latest work, you said you just like sat down and you would just like type out whatever. Yeah, came to mind. I, 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 it, well, it's 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 not it's less that whatever came to my mind, and it's it's more that um, I already had the whole story kind of mapped out mentally. Um, and the the book's structure is sort of similar to, um, or at least inspired by, a lot of the work of Thomas Bernhard, who uh, his novels are typically you know, one section long, they're often just one paragraph and, um, and it's, it's sort of like the, the main narrator uh, kind of ranting, you know, it's like sort of going on and on about a topic. Um, and so given that it had that structure, I just found it really easy to keep going. Um, and I never felt like I needed to plan really. Um, and, in this in this now third draft, I if anything I've, I've taken things out like that were diversions that didn't need to be in it but um, but yeah, it was just a, for whatever reason it was like the easiest writing experience of my life and it just came you know do you think you'll translate this into uh, Spanish? Um, I mean I would be honored if, if, if somebody wanted to publish um, a tr- Spanish language translation actually so um the uh, illustrator. This book, my friend Kit Schluter, uh, he lives in Mexico City. He is a translator himself. Wow. Um, he is starting a small press there in Mexico where he his goal is to translate American writers into Spanish. Um, and we found a translator for uh, my first book, 49 Venezuelan Novels, and it's been translated now. And so it's going to be published in Spanish in Mexico. Um, I think this year, I think later this year. Um, but, um, But yeah, with salmon, I mean, the the only thing is that so much of the anachronistic language in it seems sort of tied to English Mm -hmm. as a language, so I I feel like translating it might be a little tricky, but I myself am not a translator, so I'm sure, you know, I'm sure they have ways of handling that problem. Have you tried to translate? Um, yeah, a little bit. Like, you know, I've found a poem online in Spanish and I would try to translate it, um, you know, I think the thing about translating is that it's 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 so time consuming. Like it, it mm-hmm. almost feels like it's more time consuming than actually write, like writing your own thing from scratch. Um, and Kit uh, has mentioned to me like that the metaphor that he uses is like, imagine you have a, a harp that is out of tune uh, and then you tune the first string, you know, and it has mm-hmm. to be an A or whatever. And then the next string has to be an E. So you tune the second string, but because you've, Uh, tightened the the tuning pegs, it has slightly detuned the first string. So then you have to go back and retune the first string. And then you move on to the third string. But by tuning the third string, it has slightly detuned the strings that have come before it. And so he says that essentially the the process of translating a novel as he's done from Spanish into English, he says it's sort of been like that where he's just had to go back over and over and over again because he's not just translating the content, but a whole kind of, literary sensibility into English. Um, mm-hmm. And it, it develops as you translate it. And, um, you know, he, he said that he, he the last thing he, he had published last translation was uh, a book by uh, this, the Mexican writer, uh, Rafael Bernal. Um, the book is, um, oh man, I'm totally blanking on the title. I read it and I loved it. Um, but he said that, um, you know, he basically had to retranslate it like 10 times. Wow. Because it's just like, you know, you do the first translation where you're just getting the words down, but then, you know, you want to get the sensibility. And so it seemed like, you know, he spent as much time as somebody would writing a novel just translating. it. so, yeah. But yeah, for me, it's like, I, I I don't know if I have that patience, you know, um, uh, it, it does seem like fun, though. And of course, I think uh, what's also exciting is, Bringing a writer who has not been very widely read in English into you know the English language uh, reading public—that's probably really satisfying. Would you ever write a book entirely in Spanish? Mm, not at this point in my life. Maybe in the future. My Spanish isn't strong enough um, anymore. I, you know, I just—it's totally rusted. Like I'm out of practice, and um, and so I, I know that uh, Beckett uh, started writing in English, and then switched to writing in french which is not is not his native language and the reason he supposedly said is to make writing more difficult uh to, and to force him to be like a little bit more simple in his language mm-hmm. because he would have to be because he, he doesn't have as much of a you know fluency in, in french as he has in english and while that's interesting I, I don't know if that's attractive to me like if i were to write in spanish it would just it would be like children's literature or something you know like mm-hmm. the cat sits on the mat um yeah. when you were growing up though did you speak it like fluently like yeah yeah it was my first language actually uh english was technically my second but um but i, I after i moved to the united states when i was uh eight i just stopped speaking it entirely and so i still i mean I, you know I, I i understand it well and i could speak it um somewhat um a little jumbled a little awkward a little stilted and my grammar isn't the best um it's one of those things as well that if, if I really dedicated time to uh, Spanish, I could probably become, you know, fluent to a literary degree within, I don't know, two or three years. Um, but again, it's one of those things of I, I, don't, <laughs> I don't know if I have the time. I, I, I if I moved to a Spanish-speaking country, that would probably be the best thing for me. Um, have you thought about moving back to Venezuela? No, no. Why uh, not? I just country is, you know, uh, experienced a long-term economic collapse. I mean, it's just, uh, it's not, uh, my, my dad still lives there and he, and he's trying to leave permanently. Um, Oh, wow. Uh, and pretty much all the family that I did have that, that lived there has moved. Um, you know, they're either in Europe and Spain elsewhere in Europe, Miami, if they can, if they got citizenships. Um, so yeah, I would never move back to Venezuela. Um, I I I mean I'd love to visit. I haven't been in a long, long time. But um So like there's, what there's, there's, mean, there's just no there's no industry there, you know. Industry of like writing or well just like I mean, um my only you know source of income is teaching. And uh-huh. uh I, I it just teachers, university professors there are, are paid. I mean university professors in the United States are paid poorly, but in Venezuela it's like significantly, significantly worse. So um but isn't like American money like worth like more over there?
0: Like, I don't know, I I interviewed someone that lives over there and they were saying they only made like 200 bucks like a month or their their apartment cost that or something.
1: Yeah, no, it's true because, uh, so uh, they've been going through the the bolivad, which is the currency uh, has been going through hyperinflation for I think uh, at least two, three years. And so the effect Mm -hmm. of that, of course, is that the dollar is very strong. but, you know, I mean, obviously, if you move to Venezuela, you're going to be making bolivares. um, yeah. And so, you know, you'd be, you'd be, you would, I mean, if if someone were to live there and be able to make money, th- dollars, you know, by doing remote work, then I suppose that that would be very different. And they could mm-hmm. probably live quite comfortably. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I um, my friend uh, who I just was talking about, he, he really loves Mexico. Um, he's encouraged me to tr- think about moving down there. I don't know if I ever would, but... Uh, I have another friend who moved to Spain. He really loves it. I mean, I, I I thought about moving to a Spanish speaking country. Uh, it's more a matter of just, you know, practical concerns of like what I would do for work. Do you think if you
0: would have stayed in Venezuela, like if your parents had stayed together, do you think you would have became a
1: writer? Uh, that's a great question. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, life is full of those things, right? Where you wonder if I hadn't done that or if I had done that, what would have happened? Mm-hmm. i think i'd probably be a professional soccer player playing uh-huh. at uh, sort of fifa level <laughs> yeah <laughs> no actually the venezuelan soccer team is terrible um no I, I mean i don't i don't know i i feel like i feel like um who knows because I, I it's not like I, I always had a love for literature when i was a kid I, I didn't really read at all i liked video games a lot uh i liked RPGs that had like big stories but yeah. I didn't I didn't really go out of my way to read it wasn't until it wasn't really until I was like a teenager 18 19 that I started reading a lot more um and so you know why uh probably a number of accidents and you know random encounters and so if I had stayed there I really have no idea what my life would have been like Were
0: you ever pressured to become a
1: dancer no, no, my parents weren't at all um uh like that. They didn't care. Um and I don't think I'd be uh, very good at it. <laughs> Do you
0: ever think about writing from the perspective of a dancer? Well, it's funny you
1: should ask, but uh wow. because I <laughs> I I started well, it's what the, the thing I'm talking about isn't from the perspective of a dancer, but I started a project that I I probably won't really start proper until next year just because i have too many other balls in the air but um it is about um the tentative title is after eden which is the name of a pas de deux choreographed by john butler um Mm -hmm. who was a you know choreographer uh and uh it's about uh adam and eve after they've been uh, expelled from paradise um and my parents actually danced this together wow uh, at a dance company that they uh they worked at um and so i i'm sort of building a project that uses that as a kind of set piece for um for a, a novel length work and so um I, it's, it's not going to be about dance but it'll have a, a part in it it'll play a role oh, that's cool dude yeah
0: so he, you said your dad's trying to move out from venezuela mm, yeah is he trying to move over to where you live no
1: no uh he is so he he actually um has eu citizenship because his great grandfather uh, emigrated from italy to venezuela whoa and so he was able to get citizenship and um so obviously that makes the prospect of living in europe much more easy um but you know of course there is a uh reality that yeah he's like older and he'd be moving to a new country which is like already a pretty difficult thing to do financially and then finding suitable work and all that kind of stuff and so um he's in the process of kind of working through that and um his his brother my uncle lives in spain so he would probably move there and join him uh could he teach dance yeah, he he he. Um, that's what he was doing in Venezuela for a long time. Um, but unfortunately, there's no longer a, a culture industry there, and so really,
0: like yeah. the entire culture is gone.
1: Well, it's it's not. You know, I'm sure that there there, there obviously are, are cultural events, and and you know, it's not like that stuff has is, is disappeared. It's just that it used to be that you know um, he could make a living being a dance instructor because there were uh, a number of you know the private dance and, and and public dance companies that required teachers um and rehearsal directors and that kind of mm-hmm. stuff and the funding for that it just doesn't exist a, a, a lot of of the arts in venezuela um historically have been state funded and so um and so that funding dry has dried up and so my dad said that you know he's he has done teaching in the last few years but um all of the dancers you know where in the whereas in the past dance would be their job they all have other jobs and so like they you know he, he says that it's it's just much more um much more difficult um and and the, the, so the money is is just not not there did you uh learn how to i guess did you watch your parents like
0: train as dancers and then you took that in when you started like writing like you saw them train i guess i don't know
1: no i mean uh, because my mom had me when she was um she was 40 and so she was already oh. toward the end of her career as a ballet dancer and i think after she had me she retired and um so i yeah i never never saw her dance um and my father still danced cuz he he was uh, about 8 years younger than her um but um even yeah you know at that point he, he had sort of gone through his training already cuz you know he he had been doing it for a number of years and so uh, what i saw in, instead were just performances uh occasionally
0: uh-huh. all right and as we end this do you want to read a piece from the book or um uh, i actually don't have it in front of. oh well okay <laughs> i'm sorry that's all right sorry. are you going to publish any more with the shabby doll house or are you did you did it, were you like actively trying to find a publisher
1: before you went to lucy um I, in, in terms of publishing with Lucy again, I mean, uh, that would be great. I, I, I love working with Lucy, and it's been a really wonderful experience. Lucy is really dedicated and really caring. Like, she she's invested. Um, in terms of, um, yeah, so w- with Salmon, uh, I, uh, I did submit it to a number of publishers, and it received very positive feedback. A lot of publishers really liked it, um, but they said that either it was too short or it didn't cohere enough for them. And so, you know, while they enjoyed it, they passed, and I sort of got that um, response over and over again, um, which is fine because you know publishers need to be selective, and you can only publish so many books. Uh, but it was it was at the same time a little frustrating to hear that the editors enjoyed the book, but they didn't want to publish it. And so yeah. and Lucy had read it, and she liked it a lot. And so I, I um, yeah, we, we we were talking about it, and and. We kind of hatched the idea of of publishing it together. Um, and she had coincidentally been talking to Caroline about the same thing. And so it sort of naturally just happened. Uh, this was like, I guess, October or November of last year. Um, that's when we started planning it. Were you confident in like the story so
0: much that you didn't want to change it? Like, would you were you thinking about like, oh, I should change this because these editors
1: no that. no i mean i i never had received any feedback that said we would publish it if you had done x y and z thing oh. it, it, it was more just like yeah i enjoyed this it's not for us though that type of thing so um i mean i i, I liked the book as it existed um I, I would i would like to think i'm not so uh vain or proud that i <laughs> that i wouldn't take suggestions i mean in fact actually there's lots of suggestions that i took from friends for for salmon um it just felt like more like, well, I think this is the book. This is what it's going to be. And so, um, you know, if I, I was sort of either going to abandon it um, and Lucy said, no, I don't want that to happen. I want the book to come out. So, um, so, yeah, really, it's all thanks to her that it happened.
0: Well, good for her. Shit. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Is
1: there anything else that you want me to ask you? um i don't think so i i I, if anything i just want to say i really appreciate you reading the book and being such a thoughtful and attentive reader and for all of your questions i really appreciate it well thank you
0: you're welcome it was a really fun book i had a lot of fun reading it i'm glad you enjoyed it
1: all right we'll see you later man thanks so much take care okay bye
0: bye And that was Sebastian Castillo with Salmon. It was published this week had a really great time. That went by really fast. Usually those. Yeah, he was a great talker. He had a lot of stories. All right. Not sure how many more of these podcasts I'm going to be doing. Getting a little uh, exhausted. Not the talk. Not the talking part. I enjoy the talking. I enjoy the conversations. The parts that I'm getting tired of is just like the planning and the scheduling. And the the kind of the sameness of it. I want to change things up a little bit. But not say what I'm going to change up. I probably shouldn't be talking about this because it's pretty vague. It has nothing to do with Sebastian. Which, you all should go buy this book, Shabby Dollhouse. Go to Amazon. Go to shabbydohalls.com, pick up salmon. It's a great, it's fucking fantastic. We basically, I mean, listen, if you haven't if you haven't picked this up yet, I mean we kind of covered the entire book. With the exception of a few parts. I'm very tired. I didn't get a lot of sleep last night. And I got a few hours of sleep. And then on Sundays, I always have a big family dinner with my family. But I think I ate too many of the potatoes from the lunch because my mom makes the lunches. And I had too many potatoes and I could tell that I was probably going to get yelled at. So what I did was I went and saw a movie I saw Fast 10 before. which is like a three hour movie. And then I got home, took a shower, got dressed. In like five minutes. And went off and had a great lunch. And I haven't shaved. I look a little musky. But that's it. We're going to end this podcast. And I will. Talk to you guys later. Go buy salmon. Go to the readings. May 28th. May 23rd. Things like that. I don't know if that's when the readings are. Let me check real quick. It was a very pleasant, very pleasant reading. I didn't know if my comments were going to be like intelligent enough or if I articulated my opinions well enough. But he seemed very pleased with them. So I'm just going to go ahead and uh, accept his compliments on my opinions of the book. I did not ask him if he's done cocaine. If he writes another book and publishes another book by Lucy, I would like to have him back on. Or if he just publishes another one, which I'm sure he's going to. He's read a lot. Dude, this guy's done so many podcasts, so it was awesome that he came on this one. We've been planning it since like October of like last year, but he let me know that he was putting out that he was publishing with Lucy. He said, maybe you should hold off till then. And I did. We've been planning it back and forth over Twitter. Going over the dates, going over when to record, when to not record. So if he's listening to this, thank you, Sebastian. I wonder if he's like... I don't know what happens when you click off of this. If you can see people still talking. I know when you try to get it into Google Meets, I think it shows a preview of like a person talking. Like a little video. And I always wonder if people can see me like talking to myself, hosting the show. And I don't know what happens when people click off, if they can still see me talking. But oh well, that's how a podcast works. I have to host. Man, my brain is slow right now. Might be because of COVID. I'm not sure. I feel very inspired. This book sort of, it makes me want to go right. I need to change my entire life around i've been I've been living the wrong and the wrong ways. I need to commit to a new style every two hours every day. I feel like I, that's I think' that's possible. That's not impossible. The reading part though. I love talking about the book. I like when writers come on here. And I always like, I always go against my own beliefs of how people should read a book. I always feel like you shouldn't, you shouldn't ask writers what something means. You should just like, let it exist without knowing. And you, the reader should interpret the text and how you relate to it and what it means to you. I feel like it's a cheap way, uh, if you want to, if like to ask a writer what something specifically means. But you know what? As I'm doing this, I didn't know that I would I would ask writers specifically what something means. But I found out. Find out as I do. They will answer, and they don't mind, and they want to talk about their work. So maybe I'm just some fucking hypocrite to myself. But yeah, if you're a writer and you want to come on and you got a book let me know. I'll try to, I'll do my best.